Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Benny Roshan. Benny is a partner at law firm Greenberg Glusker and shares its trusts and probate litigation group. Her practice involves all aspects of litigation and administration involving substantial trusts and estates, including conservatorships. For over 15 years, Benny has successfully represented a wide range of fiduciaries and beneficiaries in disputes involving trusts, fiduciary appointments, accountings, removal, and surcharge. Benny is recognized by the Chambers and Partners in their High Net Worth Guide for 2021 and 2022, and in 2018, the Daily Journal named Benny one of the top 40 lawyers under 40 in the state of California. Thanks so much for joining us, Benny. Good afternoon, David. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So the subject of this week's episode is the fairly recent tragedy involving Anne Heche. Heche was an actress known for her roles in a variety of genre films, television, daytime television specifically, and theater, receiving numerous accolades, including a National Board of Review Award and multiple Emmy Awards. However, events in Heche's personal life often upstaged her acting career. So from 1997 to 2000, she was in a very high-profile same-sex relationship with comedian Ellen DeGeneres, sometimes described as the first gay super couple. Uh, immediately following her split with DeGeneres in 2000, she had a highly publicized psychotic break in which she appeared at a rural ranch house outside of Fresno, claiming to be an entity named Celestia, who would take humanity to heaven in a spaceship. In 2001, she published a memoir titled Call Me Crazy that alleged ex extensive childhood sexual abuse by her father. On August 5th, 2022, Hesh was critically injured when she crashed her car into a house at a high speed. She sadly died at a hospital in Los Angeles on August 11th, 2022. On August 31st, Hesh's eldest son, Homer, filed a petition in Los Angeles County Probate Court claiming that Hesh had died intestate and asking that she be named, he be named her estate's administrator. LaFoon's lawyer also stated that they wished to have a third party appointed guardian ad litem for Hesh's younger son and Homer's half-brother, Atlas. On September 15th, Hesh's former partner, James Tupper, Atlas's father, filed a petition raising objections to Homer. He argued that an email sent by Haitian 2011 describing her wishes in the event of her death should be treated as her will. Toffer's position challenged Homer's qualifications to administer the estate, claiming that at 20 years old, he lacked the maturity required of an administrator, and that Homer's lack of personal assets and income would render him unable to post the required bond. Tupper also concluded that he wished to act as an executor and hire a professional fiduciary to manage the estate. In October, a judge determined that Homer will remain administrator of the late actress's estate, despite Tupper's position. Uh, the genesis of today's episode is actually a conversation I had with my wife, uh, also an attorney, 
um, about how I mentioned executor and or trustee selection in basically every episode, but then sort of flip past them because they're only tangential to the main topic. So she thought that's something that's tangential to basically every estate planning topic probably deserves its own episode. And as usual, she is right. So here we go. Benny, though I've often lumped trustee and executor selection together when I've mentioned them in passing in past episodes, the responsibilities of the roles are actually quite different. Could you give us a quick overview as to what exactly an executor and a trustee do respectively? Yeah, absolutely. So at their core, executive executors and trustees um, are representative roles. And you know what that means is that these appointed or nominated or named persons serve on behalf of a trustee or an executor. Um, there are a lot of similarities between the two roles because you know they have fiduciary obligations, they have responsibilities to the heirs and beneficiaries of a particular trust or estate. And, you know, but, but they're quite different um, in, in some other aspects. For example, one of the main key differences between an executor and a trustee is that executors are automatically under court supervision because if you have a will and you don't have a trust, your estate goes through the court system. And so you have to file, you know, certain of your um, accountings and documents with the court if you are a trustee a lot of the times you have the option of bypassing the court supervision process and you can administer the trust or act on behalf of um, a particular, you know, trust without that added layer of court supervision. And so is that an advantage or a disadvantage depending on being able to bypass or being forced to be under that sort of court supervision? That just depends on sort of the experience level of the executor or the trustee in question? Yes, all of the above. And I think I'll unpack that a little bit. I think in general, anytime you go through court supervision, um, you're introducing another factor, you know, into the equation. And so there are notice requirements, for example, you can't um, sell real estate in, in some of the estates without actually giving a particular type of notice to the beneficiaries, or you have to have that sale um, authorized and, you know, blessed by the court. And so it adds delays um, mm. to the administration of that particular estate, whereas if you have a trust situation, the trustee in the trust document specifically has powers and authorities that allow it to act more quickly, efficiently, take you know, action in emergency situations that you are not necessarily afforded if you have to have 45 days or 60 days or even 15 days of notice in a, um, a state administration. It's interesting. Would you also say that, I guess, if an executor uh, is sort of making a mistake, God forbid, that it's going to be sort of rectified more quickly because they're having to report everything to the court in that way. Whereas a trustee, even though they have you know, the, the other side, I guess, of this uh, uh, flexibility and power that they have is that they are sort of given enough rope to hang themselves metaphorically if they, if they make a mistake. Um, you know, I think that the, the supervision process is, is available in, in both respects, but yes, typically, you know, if, if you have to have a um, court approval of, of every of, of a lot of your decisions, then I think you don't have a lot of wiggle room, you know, in terms of your own autonomy to act as a representative. 
And so it does tend to be more supervised and looked, you know, your actions are looked over by more people like looking over your shoulder. Whereas a trustee, a lot of the times what you have is, um, you know, you, you're, you're required to account to the beneficiaries and that requirement is usually annually. You're, you're you know, you need to account to the beneficiaries annually. And unless something happens where you're accused of, you know, breaches of fiduciary duty, mishandling somebody's estate, you don't, you know, have that same court supervision. Um, so it, it just, it just has pluses and minuses depending on what a particular person um, prefers. Now, anytime you have an estate situation, you know, you also more likely also have a trust. The only difference is, is that whatever is in your estate there's a pour over will that that pours it into into the trust. And so you're able to um, bypass the court supervision, which I think is preferable in general um, nowadays, because there there is a lot more uncertainty when you go through the court system than there is when you just have a trustee administer the trust for the benefit of the beneficiaries. And also in terms of we haven't even discussed costs, you know, there are costs associated with everything that goes through the court system. So it, it, it does tend to become more expensive because you automatically have to have a lawyer, you have to have um, certain you know, agents that have to help you go and take that particular estate through the court system. Yeah, and then this is especially important in a state like New York where the backlog is, I mean, it's comical, it's Kafkaesque at this point. Um, you could wait several years to have your a simple estate administered through probate, whereas you can kind of just skip the whole thing. Uh, with a well, with a well set up trust, we've mentioned the word fiduciary a bunch of times already. A lot of our audience is financial advisors, and fiduciary uh, is a buzzword uh, in the current sort of financial advisory space. However, what a financial advisor considers a fiduciary, and what sort of an attorney, in this case a trustee or a uh, executor, would be considered a fiduciary, are two very different things. Uh, so, do you mind just explaining sort of what the when we say fiduciary in terms of a trustee, sort of what that duty actually entails? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, you know, if you look at the core of a lot of the responsibilities um, of a trustee, um, there's there's overlap in terms of their responsibilities. And, you know, the, the, the term of art that's used in the trust and estates world, fiduciary, they call that because they are responsible for financial management of funds belonging to somebody else and, and, and really for the benefit of somebody else. So the duty not to commingle assets, the duty to, um, you know, account to the beneficiaries, to, 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 to assist and provide discretionary distributions and all of that. There's, there are a lot of, you know, similarities in that regard. And, and we are governed by, and most states have some kind of a code, you know, the probate code, it, it lists all of the duties that you have. And if you actually look at the financial um, advisor role, which we traditionally think of as a fiduciary and a trustee um, role, there's quite a bit of similarities. And so I think the only difference being that, you know, a financial advisor doesn't necessarily have a um, formal duty to account to the beneficiaries, mm -hmm. but in terms of receiving compensation, in terms of, um, you know, actually managing for the benefit of somebody else so that you render a benefit and a service to an entity or a group of individuals, um, they're, they're, they're very similar. Um, I think, I think we can, I, I can talk about more like specific, very specific differences, but that would be diving into the weeds 
um, how he would do that. Specifically in this hash case, when we were having our sort of prep call for this uh, episode, uh, you mentioned something that you saw the judge say, I guess, in admonishing um, one of the attorneys in the case. Do you mind uh, repeating what that was to me for our audience? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, my point when we were talking about it was just the importance of a lot of people don't think it's a big deal to have um, estate planning documents. And I think, you know, maybe I'm biased because I'm a trust and estates uh, litigation attorney here, but I think that when you don't make a choice to have an actual estate plan, you are in essence making a choice to allow the state um, and particularly like judges and other lawyers make those decisions for you. So you you do lose that control. And I think when we were talking about um, the Anne Heche, you know, estate administration in particular, I just noticed that, you know, the inefficiency that results when you don't have an estate plan. You know, somebody can come in, um, for example, Homer wanted to be appointed and then he received objections to that appointment. And you had, you know, James Tupper come in and, and make all sorts of accusations. And the court is obligated to, to assess everybody's, you know, allegations and statements before the court and, and, and allows the court to kind of take a very um, active and supervisory role and, and make assessments and judgments that are not necessarily, I guess, welcome to the parties that... that <laughs> that find themselves in court. And so I think one of the things that I noticed was uh, James Tupper was saying, well, you know, what what business does, does Homer have? He's 20 years old. There isn't really a relationship between he and his younger brother. He's, you know, is he qualified? Is he, uh, you know, fit to serve in this fiduciary role? And the judge's comment was, well, you know, you don't need a particular um, qualification because the code requires that you have certain um, priority of appointment. And if you're somebody's child, biological child, you do have that priority of appointment. And so, you know, the court took a very strong sort of position on that. And and, and it, it's, you know, looking at it from the outside, it's absolutely true. It's, it's, you don't have a trust or estate. And so it just goes through the process and the court has to make a decision, you know, the best that it can at that particular moment in time. Um, and so that was that was definitely something that that jumped out at me as the particulars of um, the Anne Heche estate. So, you know, this idea we talked about qualified is another word that we've sort of tossed around a bunch of times. And we are talking about a 20 year old here. What do we mean when we say qualified? What is who's qualified to be? Uh, you know, we, we've established that basically anyone can be an executor. Um, but who should be an executor? That's a great question. Um, you know, the, that word is generically thrown around qualified or not qualified. I think at the core of it is, is this person, can this person do the job with the right help and agents in place? So obviously, you know, a 20 year old is not going to be able to figure out exactly what needs to be filed, what, you know, he, what steps he needs to take in order to actually administer um, the estate. But um, if the other, if that person has, you know, the, what we would in, in the like regular society consider, you know, reasonably um, fit or reasonably, uh, you know, throwing over the word qualified again, you know, where they can do the job with help, that means that they can actually be appointed. Um, it, it doesn't require 
you know, a PhD degree, a college degree, there are no requirements like that. But if you have certain markers, um, like you filed for bankruptcy, for example, then that is an automatic disqualification. If you were sued for fraud, that's another automatic disqualification. So it's not so much that you have to check certain boxes to be qualified. Oftentimes it's, are there things in your record publicly available that would serve as a specific disqualification um, that, you know, that would prevent you from serving in a, in a fiduciary or in a representative capacity. And is there any argument, this is at the risk of taking us down the rabbit hole with my own curiosity, um, based on sort of the amount of help that a potential executor would need? Or is it just if they can do it with any amount of help, then that's totally fine? Or could the other side sort of bring up, well, you know, we're going to dilute the assets of the estate because he's going to require so much help? Typically, it's the latter. If if you can have agents, and, and usually there isn't like a maximum, you know, or like a minimum agents. So I see estates like, for example, um, you know, I, I think Mark Hughes, he left behind a, a minor child as well when he passed, you know, I think a couple of decades ago or a decade ago. And in that scenario, I mean, I there were so many agents um, to help just, just because it, it was really complex. It had, you know, like real estate um, that that was like in the process of being sold. And it wasn't just any real estate. It was like, you know, the most expensive real estate in, in like the entire you know state of California, for example, something like that. Um, so typically, if you need the help, the court will allow you mm -hmm. to have that help. So that's an executor. What about a trustee, I guess? What was the same question for a trustee? Anyone can be named a trustee, but who should be a trustee? Right. I think it's important when, when you are uh, drafting your estate planning documents or you're considering um, selecting people, it's very important to kind of look at a couple of things. For example, if you have young children, I have young children. And so, you know, what was really important for my estate plan was, okay, if something happens to both me and my partner, what, you know, what is important to me in terms of somebody, you know, raising my children? And so you look at, you look at the qualities and characteristics of the people that more likely will not only um, manage your assets for the benefit of your minor children, but you also look at, you know, what, what sort of characteristics you want them to have in terms of, you know, like they're, they're patient, they are loving, they are like stable as humans, they don't have, you know, glaring um, character flaws or illnesses. Um, so that's, that's on the, on the one end of the spectrum, it, it affects if you have like minor children, if you don't have minor children, then I think you're, you're going to want to look at characteristics that are more traditionally considered qualified, you're going to want somebody that has um, a good temperament that can, that doesn't necessarily inflame, you know, can work with, with a lot of different um, groups of people with different personalities, like in a, in a family setting, you want them to be educated, you want them to have to be responsible financially, you, you don't want somebody that um, you know, has had bankruptcies or, or, or trouble, you know, like has, has like credit card, you know, debt or things like that. So it's important to look at people and it's, it, it is in a way, a, it's very much a job. So you can and should interview the person and look at them mm -hmm. on, a, on a deeper level in order to determine 
really how will they manage your estate or your trust in a way that really preserves the trust or estate for the benefit of the beneficiaries that you are selecting. That's a really awesome point. The idea that you know, these are jobs, these are major responsibilities. So even though you know, you're sort of a lot oftentimes in smaller estates giving wealth to family members, you still need to tell them and make sure it's okay. Uh, it's, you really need to talk to them because they are, it, it is a large undertaking and to simply dump it in somebody's lap and expect them to happily do a good job is often asking a lot. Absolutely. And you know what, David, I think we we didn't touch on this when we were talking about traditional fiduciaries that manage money, um, but these are paid jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. you, are, you are paying someone to render a service. And so in, in the fiduciary world, you know, it's more traditional, like, all right, you get 1% of, you know, the size of the portfolio, portfolio, right? If you're a trustee, you get, you the compensation is very similar. I mean, I've looked at you know, trusts where it's any time, anything between like 1% to, to, to one and a half uh, percent um, of the total, you know, trust assets under management. And I mean, that's, that could be a sizable sum. I mean, that, that's like something that can support somebody for an entire year or like an entire family, depending on how much you have in a particular trust. And estates are obviously different because they, a lot of the times, you know, you have the statutory compensation that's built into a particular law of that jurisdiction. There's also the issue um, that that person is taking on a certain degree of of, of liability by accepting this job. It's not a, a risk-free proposition, right? Absolutely. They, yeah, yeah. Because of their fiduciary duties and you know, they may become personally liable for, for certain aspects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're, you know, it, it's both important for the person choosing um, the, the the roles, and it's also important for the person accepting that role, because when you're stepping into it, you are stepping into a situation where if you make a wrong move, if you prioritize one group of beneficiaries at the expense of another beneficiary, and the court issues a judgment, and there is there you don't you're not insured for that role or you know there isn't like liability insurance that circles back to you personally. Mm-hmm. And I think this really highlights uh, sort of again I'm generalizing, but one of the key differences uh, between executorships and trusteeships. Um, executorships generally, if you have a will, you're just sort of following instructions. I mean, you certainly have decisions to make, but you have so, at least sort of a guide that is given to you of like this is do this, do this. You're, you're just kind of the hands of of the person who has passed. Whereas as a trustee, you're sort of being forced to place yourself in the shoes of the dead person and then make decisions as they would have made them. And that, that's sort of a very different situation and very difficult. And and the thing with, uh, you know, the, the state administrations usually have like an endpoint and most estates are, okay, you uh, are appointed, you marshal the assets, you administer it, you do a final accounting and you are discharged of your duties. In other words, you're done. There, there's some finite, you know, term that you serve and, and that just reduces a lot of, you know, the uncertainty. But with trusts, trusts are going concerns. You know, you could have a trust be administered for decades and decades and decades and decades. So it, it's something that 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 is more ongoing. And so every year that you serve, that, you know, gives you 
basically an opportunity to have all of your actions be evaluated and and um, looked over, you know, just sort of ad infinitum for, for the life of that that trust. Yeah, and over those years, a simple instruction such as you know, acting as they would have acted or acting in the best interest of XYZ can get real complicated, especially once you start having people come in with hindsight that you know maybe the decision maker didn't have at the time. For sure. And and that's that's I mean, that's pretty much like, you know, I'm in business because <laughs> much of that. <laughs> hindsight so, 2020. Yeah. So interesting sort of update on the Haitian state recently is that the woman whose house she crashed into is suing the estate for $2 million. Right. As an executor, sort of what, what role, I guess, or administrator in this case, what role do you have to take when something like that happens when, when an estate is sued? And, and my understanding is that there are a lot of creditors claims, um, yes. claimants that, that, yeah, that have like launched claims in, in um, and Haitian state. So the, at the core of it is as an, as an executor or as an administrator, because there, there was no will, um, you have to evaluate the claim. You have to do certain diligence. You have like a diligence requirement and you have, you know, an obligation to act on when a claim is filed. You could either take it under submission, not act on it, or you reject it or you accept it. And so that the depending on how much diligence is is done, a decision will be made whether to accept, reject, or on you know keep under submission um, a particular claim. And so with respect to the woman whose house was damaged, and you know, and my understanding is that the damages were extensive. I mean, my inclination is that that probably some portion of it will be accepted although the ultimate payout you know it's 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 like it, it raises a whole other complication because i think from media reports we're told that it is about four hundred thousand dollars that the total you know net worth and liquidity of the estate and so if you accept a claim um worth like two million or even a million there's just going to have to be certain apportionments that are done, ultimately diluting the amount that that goes even to like legitimate creditors' claims. Mm. And how would the existence of a trust, I guess, you know, say if there are four hundred thousand dollars that were all in a trust, how how would that sort of interface here? Again, we're getting into the hypothetical with, with this sort of hypothetical lawsuit. Um, if if there were a trust and just no court administration going on, like if if we just had a trust and the four hundred thousand dollars was just being filtered through a trust yes okay in, in that scenario i mean you wouldn't have you wouldn't have um lawyers that you would need to pay right right now uh, you, you have to like basically there's legal fees involved mm -hmm. which diminish the estate i mean ultimately if it's four hundred thousand dollars there's a certain statutory entitlement to attorney's fees in california so when all is said and done X dollars go to the lawyers that actually helped administer the estate. Whereas if there would have been a trust, you you wouldn't you would save that um, money ultimately, and it would go to the beneficiaries. So we're running out of time here a little bit. So I'm just going to kind of put you on the spot, Benny, and ask you to sort of sum up sort of the, the meandering conversation that I've led you on here. Um, and that if you had to sort of in a sentence or two, describe the difference between sort of an executor and a trustee and sort of why that selection uh, for each is important. H how would you do that? 
Um, I would um, treat them in, in, in a similar light um, where I would just do an analysis ahead of time. I would sit down, I would make a to-do list of, you know, the person's qualities, qualifications, education level, um, relationship with my, you know, children or family members if, if my children are, are grown. And then I would actually select the same folks um, to, to act as executors and trustees um, because at, at the core of it, they're going to be acting on behalf of, you know, myself or, you know, whatever the representative role is. And so I would do that diligence, even if it takes months and or even a year or two years, I would do that analysis so that I could sleep better at night, knowing that I did the best I could in, in selecting folks that would be in charge of my assets. Something happened to me. Well, that's about all the time we have, folks. I'd like to thank Benny Rashan for being a really great guest and for helping us sort of unpack a bit of a complicated topic here. So thanks for coming on, Benny. Thank you for having me. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.